Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we're here to become better habitat managers. Hope y'all are doing great. It is late night here on a uh, Wednesday, getting this podcast out for you guys tomorrow. We have a great one for you. We have Hunter Johnson. He is a friend of ours in Arkansas, and this is an awesome episode, guys. We cover all kinds of stuff. Hunter is a manager at a, what do you call it, I guess? It would be a large properties managed for ducks among other habitat types and animals, deer and turkey. So it's a pretty cool conversation. We haven't talked with anybody from Arkansas before either. Um, And I've been wanting to get him on for a long time. And here he is tonight, guys. Hunter Johnson, we talk about moist soil management, green timber management, waterfowl habitat, turkey bedding, whitetail habitat, red oak regeneration, moving turkey bedding locations around for, you know, better success rates and improving the population. We talk about a soybean plot that he planted one time and it lasted three years. Let that rattle around in your noggin for a minute. We also talk about um, getting your sprayer dialed in so you're not wasting herbicide out on the landscape being all pricey as it is these days. Um, calibrating is the word I was looking for. Calibrating your sprayers. Hunter is an expert at that. Guys, great podcast. Entertaining friend of ours from Arkansas. Hope you guys enjoy it. If you haven't heard of the Habitat Podcast before, uh, we're getting new listeners all the time now. And I just want to tell you, thank you all for coming. We talk about improving wildlife habitat in all places of the U.S. Uh, for all different types. We talk about a lot of white-tailed deer habitat, and we're talking about improving ourselves to become better habitat managers, kind of our slogan, um, becoming better habitat managers. So if you're here, brand new, check it out. You can go all the way back to the beginning, 160-something episodes now, um, and we are growing. We, the, the reviews we're getting on Apple iTunes and Spotify are, are wonderful. Thank you all for doing that. Um, we send out five inch decals for everybody who leaves us a review. So thank you very much. The link below in the show notes, if you want to do that. Um, and you know, we're having a blast. We got some big things coming this year. A couple things in the work right now in the works right now, right now we're busy with our land plan clients. Um, the couple in Michigan I'm doing currently, um, Brian's got one in West Virginia this coming weekend. And then also North Carolina, small parcel down there and a bunch more on the list to get done here before summer. So, guys, we have some great content coming up as well. Um, we're going to be getting back together with the Exodus guys down at their trail cam radio studio for some more content coming up this spring. Uh, we're going to be traveling around, seeing other places, doing more fun things. So if you are always wondering what we're up to, check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We just hit 1,000 subscribers on there. I'm very, very happy and proud about that. We're going to up that video content. It's what you guys wanted. It's what we're going to do. 
And, and we're going to keep doing new, bigger, and better things here at the podcast. So thank you very much. I want to thank our partners this week, Exodus Trail Cameras, Afflictor Broadheads, Packer Max Cult Packers, Morris Nursery, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and the Habitat Hook. A couple things real quick before we get in with Hunter. We are doing a giveaway on Facebook. No, not on Facebook. It's on our website. Uh, for a $250 aluminum fully extendable habitat hook, the best of the best. So one I use, it's awesome. Go to our homepage, habitatpodcast.com. Look for the habitat hook giveaway and submit your email and you will be entered to win. Um, it's an awesome product. Nick nation over at habitat hook is a great guy and invented this cool hook. We use all the time in the woods. And if you don't want to wait for the drawing to happen, you can go buy one yourself. We have a discount code over there um just let them know habitat podcast sent you habitathook.com also want to talk about morris nursery before we get too far into the spring here we're finishing our orders up for morris so if you've been thinking about it want to get some trees on order i'll be happy to help you we are a dealer for morris nursery can help you out with some special pricing um love to talk about it see what your projects are see what trees are a good fit the hardiness of your area what kind of mass you are on the ground, what your goals are. We discuss a lot of that when, when talking, if you don't already know. Um, so let us know. Email us, info at habitatpodcast.com. If you email us at info at habitatpodcast.com and put Habitat Hook in the subject line, that'll also get you entered into that drawing. So, all right, everybody. Thank you very much for coming back once again. Some great guests coming up in the future. And... Um, yeah, thank you very much. We're here to become ha better habitat managers. Now we're going to roll into Arkansas with Hunter Johnson. All right, guys, we're back. Brian, how you doing tonight? Doing well, buddy. Had an uh, unexpected 50-degree sunshiny day today after weeks of ice and freezing temperatures. Oh, man, wasn't that nice, too? It's outstanding. Just what the doctor ordered. I mean, it's been bone chilling cold around here the last couple of months. We have good ice. We got like a foot of ice to fish on, but I mean, other than that, it's real cold. So today was great. And we have a special guest tonight, Mr. Hunter Johnson. How you doing, Hunter? I'm great, man. How are y'all doing? Well, thank you. Doing great. Appreciate you hopping on here. Let's hear about, um, you know, where you're from, your background, what you do for a living, all that good stuff, if you don't mind. Well, I'm in central Arkansas, and um, I manage habitat for a private family um, here, uh, the recreational property. They've got uh, three main properties, about five properties total, and probably close to 5,000 acres uh, wow. that I manage. Wow. Is that also in central Arkansas then? Yes. All, all right here in Arkansas. Yep. Some of it's, uh, uh, I live on one farm. I got another one. It's about an hour South of me and another one is about an hour West of me. Those are the, the three main ones. Uh, two of them are duck clubs. One of them's in an upland, uh, uh, pine, uh, plantation planted pines. And we're trying to bring back Turkey and quail. So, okay. So you grew up in Arkansas then you always been from there or? Um, mostly, um, lived here as a kid, um, 
we moved to southeast Missouri when I was in like the fifth grade and lived there for almost 30 years. Uh, had a duck club in southeast Missouri, owned an excavating business, and then uh, moved back to Arkansas about 12 years ago. Took a job with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission and uh, worked there for a few years and then had an opportunity to uh, jump ship and go to work in the private sector. And I've been doing this about six years straight now. Wow. Yep. Is that how a lot of the, the private club or private family type jobs occur down in your area? You know, you go work for the state for a while. So somebody sees what they like and what you're doing and then get a job with a private family. How does that normally come about? Some of it does. Most of the time, it's just who, you know, um, this job, That's I true. got it actually through my, um, it was actually my supervisor at game and fish when I first started and was part-time, um, he had a buddy that managed another club for the same landowner and uh, they were looking for somebody for this club and, and uh, he thought I would be perfect for it. And um, he came to me and said, Hey, you need to go home and tell your wife to pack her bags. Y'all need to, y'all need to move and take this job. And so (laughs) that's what I did. So So that's part of the requirement was to come live on the property. Then. So you're like, you're like a caretaker slash habitat manager slash, man of many hats i'm sure that's it that's it so this is a duck club first and foremost and you know you can find duck guides duck guides are easy to find in arkansas they're they're (laughs) very plentiful but uh uh to find somebody that can manage the timber and manage the moist soil and manage the deer herd and the, the duck habitat and and still be able to be a people person and guide be a successful duck guide that's uh that's a pretty, pretty big shoes to fill. And there's, uh, but there's several of us that do it across the state. This is uh, Arkansas, man. It's just, we're blessed with, uh, with, with a great resource, this green timber duck hunting and uh, it's big business. Okay. And are you hunting mostly flooded timber, flooded fields, flooded everything or not? Or what do you normally, I guess, Let's hear just what those properties are more more made up of. You mentioned briefly what each one's kind of consists of, but let's hear more about what they're each made up of and and kind of what you guys are hunting. Timber, green green timber, uh, red oaks are king. Um, this all of this is uh, it was levied up, formed into a GTR green timber reservoir several years ago. Um, we've got fields around us that that we own that we manage moist soil and we plant corn on to hold ducks but then um we're hunting green timber we're shooting ducks in the woods that's that's why we're here that's what what dreams are made of yeah i mean actually brian and i are are both waterfowl hunters i that's how i got into hunting was was shooting my first duck and that whole thing i've never been to a place where it's as good as what you're saying i bet if i had to guess uh brian you ever hunted down south there no, never made it down there for the timber or the rice fields. So it's on the bucket list for sure. That's what I was thinking. The rice fields. Yeah. That's the yeah. other one I was thinking of. Yep. Yeah. Stuttgart, Arkansas is uh, the rice capital of the world. They're, they're 30 minutes South of me and uh, I'm in Woodruff County and it's the mallard duck capital of the world is what they call it. So it's Unbelievable. Uh, the, the public hunting here is just off the charts. Uh, you know, this, Arkansas is a place that if you're 16 years old and you don't have your own duck boat and <clears throat> pick up with a rear end squatted, you're a punk. So, <laughs> hey, good yeah. place to grow up, man. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, for sure. Did you did you go to school for any of this stuff? You you learn from experience. What's your background there? Uh, pretty much self taught. Uh, no no degree in any of this. Um, I like it. Um, back in I had a duck club in southeast Missouri. Uh, I had a four thousand acre lease um, near a a very popular uh, uh, Missouri Department of Conservation uh, WMA conservation area, and um, I had that for about seventeen years altogether. Um, wow. And we guided hunters and we had uh, seasonal leases. If somebody wanted to lease a pit for the season, we had, uh, I had 33 spots I leased out by the season. And then I tried to keep five or six uh, to guide on uh, each year. And we had an old house. We remodeled for a lodge, but we, um, we were some of the first ones to ever enter the, enroll in the WRP program and actually have moist soil. And uh, so I started managing moist soil back in, 97 or 98 and um mickey heitmeyer was there from southeast missouri he was he's the guru of green timber reservoir management moist soil management he kind of pioneered it and um so he was close and he was helping a neighbor of ours uh pretty regularly the uh, the neighbor was helping me and uh I, I got a crash course i learned a bunch then and and then when i went to work for game and fish that's what i started out doing was uh was managing uh, moist soil and, and uh, green timber reservoirs. And then I went to manage a, a more upland uh, area, a place called Wattensaw. It was about 19,000 acres, um, mainly deer and turkey hunting. And I, I managed it for about four years. Um, wow. But so Game and Fish put me through a lot of burn courses and, uh, you know, learned how to prescribe, use prescribed fire. Um, Learned a lot with game and fish, but um, this part-time job, so so the full-time job I've got now, I was part-time here while I was with game and fish. And um, they basically just said, here, this is it. Just do it. If it's successful, it's because of you. And if it fails, it's because of you. So um, <laughs> you tell us what you need. We'll give you the tools to be successful and learn what you need to learn. So, man, I... Uh, you know, I was one of these guys that that always thought, well, you want deer and turkey. You uh, you've got woods, you got fields. You need to plant food plots, have feeders, uh, put out some minerals, and you're gonna be successful. And uh, after beating my head against the wall year after year and not seeing any results, and and being stubborn and hard headed, listening to some podcasts, uh, some of the guys you've had on, uh, some of the Land and Legacy boys, uh, uh, finally got through to me. Something clicked, and and uh. I wanted to learn more. And that was about the time that um, this this upland area that we have is about an hour west of me. And it was it's twelve hundred acres. And 30 years ago, their grandpa planted loblolly pines on it and walked away from it, leased it to a hunting club. And it's been untouched for 30 years. So now all of these big loblollies are mature. It's never been timbered, never been burned. Um, nothing. They wanted uh, a good turkey population. They wanted bigger bucks and they wanted to try to bring back quail. And they said, learn all you can and let's, let's go for it. So in my quest to learn more, everything I thought I knew about managing, I found out I didn't. And most everything I thought I knew was proved wrong. Um, but, you know, Mike Chamberlain, Brett Collier, um, Tall Timbers Research Station, you know, I just started listening to everything I could and, and researching everything, the work they had done and, and uh, led me to a whole different way of thinking than what I used to. And, and uh, 
we've been pretty successful. We've, uh, all the neighbors are complaining that, uh, <laughs> that we've taken their mature deer and we've taken their turkeys. And, you know, we used to, th this is my measure of success. Uh, when I first went up there, we would hear a, 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 occasionally you would hear a quail call in the distance. Then we got to where we were hearing quail regularly. Then we were seeing pairs of quail in our fire lines. And uh, then most recently here a few weeks ago, we jumped a covey of about 30, which is unheard of in Arkansas. So, I mean, it's just, it's been phenomenal. It's been a great ride. Congratulations. That's, that's awesome. I know, I know when, when you're saying the 30 year old loblolly, you know, and they're saying take over, I know what comes to mind that I would do right off the bat. You know, what, what were some of the things that, that you did and, and i guess i also want to define before we get too far into it when you say moist soil management and green timber management let's break that down in case people don't know exactly what that means okay so <clears throat> moist soil management is is managing native plants what most farmers would consider nuisance weeds we're managing native plants that grow in wet areas for wildlife so or for waterfowl um things like uh Smart weed, barnyard grass, um, uh, tooth cup, um, some sedges, um, stuff like that is what we're managing. We're, we're managing, we're not having to plant hot crops. We're doing slow drawdowns in the spring. Uh, that's what I'm actually working on right now is, is pulling, doing some slow drawdowns on some of our moist soil. And um, <clears throat> we may do a little spraying, a little fertilizing. We may uh, uh, plant a little millet here and there sometimes we do it by ground rig sometimes with an airplane and uh um control it mostly with water um throughout the summer and then flood it in the fall and enjoy the ducks very nice the uh green timber reservoir management is uh our number one focus is always regenerating red oaks you know that's that's the big deal um Red oaks don't like to grow where it's wet. And when I say red oaks, I'm, I'm not talking about your northern or southern red oaks. I'm talking about uh, nut all oaks and willow hmm. oaks primarily and occasional water oak. Um, even though it's got water oak in the name, they don't really like being in the water. Um, you know, they're more of an upland tree, but we're trying to manage them on places that we keep flooded for ducks. And, you know, I can, we, we flood this place, um, we try to flood as late as we can, let the trees go dormant, but we flood in late November, early December. We shoot ducks through December and January, and then we have to do a slow drawdown. We can usually get most of the water off this place, probably 80% of it off in about three weeks, but then we spend three months getting the last 20% off. You know, we've got leaves and sticks and beaver to deal with, and so it's a process. It's every day. It's three or four hours on a track hole, cleaning out pipes and cleaning out ditches and trying to keep that water moving. And, you know, we're hoping by June or July, we're dried up. And, you know, before you can get in here and really do any work with equipment, it's always August or September, early October, uh, before we're dry enough to do anything like that. So that's, uh, that's our primary objective. You know, these, these are duck clubs first and then the deer and everything, you know, has to take a back seat, but, but we've got a, We've moved the needle pretty good on our ducks. We can't do any more that's really significant. Um, now we're trying to move the needle. We've got some big deer that pass through here. We're trying to hold them and keep them uh, a little longer and let our let our guys be successful hunters. So Hunter, let's walk through that process of drawing down water and, and managing 
you know, flooded timber or, or moist soil areas, flooded corn, stuff like that. What's, what's the process? How do you start with your construction for the levy and, and how does that all work? If you could break that down for some of our listeners who might not be familiar. Well, there's only two, two places you can kill ducks where they want to be and where they don't mind going. So right. we, we try to find these places that the ducks want to be places that are somewhat imprinted on, um, then we we just experiment you know sometimes it takes a, a hot crop like corn or milo or something to to hold ducks in the in the area sometimes you can do it with moist soil we like to use a combination of both um you know when it's cold ducks are going to be in a cornfield early season they like moist soil on that migration back north they love moist soil so we try to give them a combination of both but we never hunt any of our fields i've got a cornfield back here that we've had corn on for 20 years it's never had a shot fired in it. Um, we uh, we strictly use our fields to supply the woods, and we only shoot ducks in the woods. We strict strict rules. Um, we don't hunt past nine a.m. Uh, we don't hunt any more than three or four days a week. We don't hunt any more than six or eight guys in a party. Um, we get in there, we shoot our ducks, we get out, we let them have it the rest of the day. Um, you know, and and we're trying to always let our trees go dormant so we're not flooding until you know all them leaves have turned and started falling off the trees at least before we ever ever put water on it so that's um you know you've got to be in the right area uh you've got to have good levees you've got to have good drainage pipes uh you got to have uh we use flashboard risers so we can put boards in to control the water depth um you know we want it four inches deeper, we can put a two before in there. We want it six inches deeper, we can put two two befores or a two by six. Uh, you know, when we drain, depending on how big a surface area we've got going through each pipe, we may pull a board or we may just crack a board and let a little water flow out for a few days. And then we may pull the board and then we may crack another one. And, you know, the ideal would be to start, you know, say, say on a typical 40 to 80 acre field, we would want to start draining water early February and try to have the water gone uh, slowly removed um, by mid-March, you know, to get a good flush of smart weed started, um, to get barnyard grass started. Um, if you pull water off too late or if you pull water off too fast, you don't get that moist soil effect. You get hard packed ground. And, you know, that encourages nuisance stuff like cuckleburrs and, and unwanted vegetation. So sure, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an art. There's, you know, it's like anything in habitat management. There's really no set rule. It's, uh, we're practicing physicians, you know, it's just, we, we, we practice stuff and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We learn not to do it again. So every place is a little different. You got to find that magic, magic touch. Yeah, I love how you mentioned controlling the pressure and only going in and hunting at the right times. We've preached a lot of that for deer hunting also, and that's that's a nice parallel to draw between the two for sure. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So these levees that you have to build around there, is it something that you use the, the terrain and build around it, or do you come in and just work with a blank slate and just start putting them in exactly where you need them? Mostly with a blank slate. Um, most of this ground's pretty flat. Um, you know, here where I live, if if we have a hill that's more than a foot tall, somebody built it. 
Um, oh, wow. You know, we just don't, it's pretty flat ground. Most of our, most of this is farmland and it's been precision leveled. And even if a block of woods hasn't, and it's got sloughs that run through it, the ground around it has probably been precision leveled. So, you know, you can come in and build a levee around a block of timber that's four foot tall and you can pretty much hold three foot of water across the whole thing. There may be places that's ankle deep, places that's waist deep, but you can pretty much flood the whole thing with a, you know, dirt scoops or, a, or an excavator building a, a levee around a block of woods. Okay. And what do you mean by precision leveled? Um, dirt scoops, tractors and dirt scoops have came in and graded the field where there's no humps and no no holes. Oh, wow. It's all filled up. And and it's so that farmers can can precision water, precision irrigate uh, crops. Um, and that's that's big business here. Lots of lots of dirt scoop, dirt moving operations. Uh, uh, grading ground is is big for the farmers in in this part of the country. A lot of lot of row crop irrigation. A lot of flooding for rice. Um, grading it so that you can have straight rice levees instead of crooked. You can have your levees further apart instead of close together. You know, like you see on TV in Vietnam or wherever. You know, they've got sure steep terrain and a lot of levees close together. Um, you need a, like for, for growing rice, you want a rice levee every two tenths of elevation change. So if we can get that field flatter, we can have bigger patties of rice between levees and, and minimize the levees and the levee gates that, that you have to have across the field. And, you know, it's just a bigger attraction for ducks as well. How deep, Pretty do, cool you, stuff. How deep do you, um, flood for ducks most of the time we we hunt some man or like what's too deep i guess we we hunt some managed units here in michigan that are flooded cornfields flooded marshes and refuges as well um i mean we're anywhere from you know probably need a thigh high probably right around there what are you guys doing down there we we have some stuff like that you know the ducks like shallow water uh these mallards they and that's about all we have in the woods is is mallards um we, we don't get much else. Uh, there'll be a lot of wood ducks, but we normally don't shoot wood ducks. Um, but, you know, they're in there trying to bug and they're feeding on acorns and, and loafing and they like it shallower water. So we try to flood in stages. Um, and, you know, we may, have an, we may have a block of timber that's 600 acres and it may have a slough and some lowlands through it. And, we'll have flood stage one that basically just fills the lower elevations and the sloughs up. Flood stage two starts bringing it up a little bit on the ridges. Flood stage three puts all the ridges underwater. So, you know, in the bottoms of those sloughs might be waist deep and the tops of those ridges might be ankle to shin deep. Um, and the ducks tend to get started and then move up with the water you know, so they can stay in that shallower, um, especially late season when they're trying to pair up, um, trying to trying to build calories and, and body fat to, to migrate back north. Uh, you know, that's that's huge for them. Get in there for those bugging opportunities and opportunities to pair up in shallow water thickets. Oh, man, that's fascinating stuff. I I could I bet that's got to be so much fun. I mean. We like doing what we do too, but like that's, I can, I'm just fascinated by all that. It's, it's cool stuff. It's, uh, I, I look forward to getting up every morning. I look forward <laughs> to doing my job. I, I was down there, uh, 
cleaning out pipes this morning. Uh, uh, me and my dog Lanky, we we had a a cup of coffee and a beaver rake, and and we were just keeping water moving through a pipe. And you know the ducks are still in the woods, and the snow geese flying overhead, and it's just a just a cool way to start a morning. No kidding, okay. I bet. So you mentioned some other projects you were working on. Um, the TSI for oak, the red oak regeneration versus, you know, TSI for kind of how, how we think of things more so often with, with uh, you know, early successional habitat and, and re- That's right. regrowing that understory regeneration. Tell us the, the difference here. You went into it a little bit there, but let's clarify um, how you're doing that differently than, than you would for deer. Okay, so, you know, I look at TSI as anything that we do that manipulates and improves the value, whether it's, it's a, a financial value of the timber or recreational value of the timber. Um, you know, so that could be mulching, that could be timber thinning, that could be hack and squirt, that could be cut and drop, that could be a thinning logging operation. Uh, so a lot of different things. Um, so one of the things that we do for our ducks is we like to have thickets, but we also like to have openings in that park-like setting. So, you know, you picture um, picture something you would see uh, in a magazine happening down in Georgia for quail where they've got pine trees and they're thin to like a 30 basal area. And they've got that um, understory of, of blue stem growing underneath it and uh, uh sage grass and different things we kind of want that with our hardwoods in a, in a lot of our areas in the woods but we don't want that understory we want it clean um and we want it to look like a, a national park you know when you when you look at it but we also want close by thickets so that the birds can get in it and pair up in the late season and kind of get off on their own so we do a lot of mulching uh, We've, we've got a bobcat skid steer with a mulching drum mulching head on it and so i spend a lot of hours on it and i try to mulch east and west to maximize sunlight coming to the ground and i try to bust up uh you know do mosaic patterns and and try to keep it all about the same water level and then as it comes up on the ridges i'll kind of stop and and let those areas be thick um you know what you would call a thicket with a lot of underbrush so that the birds can get in it and pair up a little bit. And, you know, as we flood the deer, we'll use these ridges too. So, so we do a lot of mulching. Um, We don't do any timber thinning here because it stays so wet, we can't get timber out. Um, So anything we cut just has to lay there. Um, And we do cut some stuff. uh, And, but, um, we also, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to protect our willow oaks and our nut all oaks. And one of the things that, that's a big project we're doing on both of our duck clubs right now is we're going around and finding these big mother oak, red oak trees. And we are hacking squirt and killing everything around it, all of the competition around it in a 30 to 50 foot radius. Um, so that when acorns drop, they can get plenty of sunlight and we can get that red oak regeneration around them. Um, awesome. So, so we're doing a lot of that. Um, some places we don't have many red oaks, so you'll hack and squirt around one and it may be a hundred yards to the next one. Um, some places there's a lot of them and there's not a lot of junk to take out. Um, but you know, we've always got 
bred oak regeneration in the back of our minds. And, you know, so, so we've got to control water. We've got to, you know, maximize sunlight. We've got to maximize acorn production uh, for all of that. So, so that's really what we do for our duck habitat. Now, we're trying to use some of this in conjunction with our deer. Um, and it's kind of a walk in a fine line, you know, for, for deer habitat, we want uh, bedding thickets and we want um, um, travel corridors that are thick. And, you know, we, we want to come in and, and make small clear cuts and that kind of stuff. But here in duck country, we really can't do that. So one of the things I did today is we're pulling the water down a little bit. So I've got some ridges exposed. And one of them I did today is about a hundred yards wide, maybe 300 yards long. <clears throat> and I went through and just hack and squirted all of the hickories uh, up and down this ridge. Then I'm gonna come back with a chainsaw and I'm gonna cut, stump cut all of my maple, uh, hackberry and elm that is say six inch diameter and less so that I can put the top on the ground to have some cover for the deer and the ducks and have that, that stump sprout that I can get the mineral stump out of. And, you know, doesn't do any good as a tree. It's a lot more beneficial to us as a shrub. So um, we're trying to kill two birds with one stone. And sometimes it's walking a fine line, um, you know, trying to, trying to keep our duck habitat like we want it and keep our deer habitat where we can hold some of these bucks on these ridges. But um, it's um, it's working out pretty good. We've uh, we're holding bigger deer every year. We've we've watched our fawn recruitment go up. We've uh, watched our doe weights increase. We've watched antler size increase on all age classes of bucks over the last six years. Um, you know we've uh, we're we're doing pretty good with our with our deer, but that's still where we can move the needle more. Um, yeah. Our, our duck club, we've, you know, like I say, it's first and foremost. So we've, we've hit it as hard as we could for several years and we've about done all we can do for the ducks. It's just kind of a maintenance deal now. So, um, hacking, squirting around a few red oaks, uh, and that will continue always. Um, and, uh, and things that we've mulched before we run a mulcher over it every once in a while, get rid of some of the overcup oaks, get rid of some of the locust and persimmon and stuff that come up and, and try to keep these areas uh, open to attract ducks from, from there. We, we got to show that footprint when ducks are migrating and flying over. We got to show water, um, enough water from the air to get them started. So that's what we're trying to work on. Now there's got to be improvements in your, in your deer and, and turkey habitat. Do you keep track of all the the antler sizes and the, the fawn recruitment and the deer weights as well as part of your gig there? We do, yes. Um, so I'm in the DMAP program. Um, we try to shoot a doe for every 50 to 60 acres of property that we have. Um, so we're shooting a lot of does every year. Um, this The last two years in a row, I've uh, got a college boy named Zach. Uh, he's in college getting a wildlife management degree. He's helped me part-time the last uh, – couple of years. Uh, he's got another year of college left. I hope to be able to get him full-time after that. But the last two years, I bought him a couple boxes of bullets and gave him 20 doe tags. And his only job through deer season is shoot 20 does. That's uh, your home on the weekends, be shooting does. You're off on vacation, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving vacation, shoot does. And 
he's done it. He's pulled it off last two years in a row. Last year he shot 20 does and a, and a four-year-old buck. And this year he shot a 20 does and, and two four-year-old bucks. So he's, oh boy, uh, he's, he's, he's doing, doing well. He, uh, he had deer hunting on the brain, but after shooting, uh, 40 some deer the last couple of years, he's, he's not as fired up about it as he used to be. <laughs> that's straight. That's straight work there. Yeah, it is. But we, uh, we, so, so every deer shot, uh, every, every doe shot, we check for lactation. Uh, if we can't find milk, we're looking for dried up milk. That will mean she's lost a fawn, um, for whatever reason that may be. Um, we're pulling a lower jawbone so we can, we can somewhat age the, the doe. We're not trying to get it. We don't care if the doe was five years old or eight years old. You know, we're just trying to find out is that doe older than three and a half or younger than three and a half. That's all we need to know about her. Um, and I can get to that in a minute. But um, so so we're pulling a lower jawbone and we're getting a weight. Um, we're, we're taking hunter observations uh, surveys, you know, and, and everybody does that when a guy comes in every hunting club. I know, hey, man, what would you see today? Well, we're, we are writing it down. So we want to know how many fawns you saw, how many does you saw. We're using trail camera surveys. And um, we have watched our fawn recruitment go from about a, when I first got here six years ago on this club to from about a, a 0.2 fawns per doe. Now we're running about 0.7 or 0.8 fawns per doe. We watched our, our doe weights on mature does, any doe two and a half or older, was running about the 112 mark and now we're about 134 on wow. on average doe weights and uh this club that i'm on here used to be a free-for-all and it was uh it was kind of somewhat public uh guy bought it and for 20 years the the people that deer hunted it the biggest deer that they had saw is actually on a buddy's wall and it scored 138. Um, last year, I had 12 deer on the property that would have beat that. So um, we're coming along pretty nice. Um, we, we Every buck we kill, we're taking weights. Um, we've watched doe weight, our buck weights go up in each age class. Um, you know, of course, we're not shooting anything younger than three and a half. Um, and we're, we're striving for that four and a half mark. And if he's got 10 points or more, he has to be five and a half. So, okay. We're trying to maximize those what few 10 pointers we've got. We're trying to maximize them and let them sure enough reach maturity. Um, nothing makes you sicker than your your DMAP coordinator saying, Y'all shot three Boone and Crockett Bucks last year. You just shot them a couple years too early. So, you know, we want to make sure that those deer are reaching their full potential. I, I can replace a 135-inch eight-pointer, but I can't, you know, somebody shoots a a 10 pointer that's 120 inches and two and a half year old because it's the biggest bucks they ever saw. He's destined to be close to Boone and Crockett and we can't replace that. So we got to let them bucks get mature. But, but we are charting everything. We're keeping up with everything. And uh, it's, uh, I enjoy that as much as, you know, when somebody shoots a deer, I can't wait to see what it weighs and, and get the jawbone out and, and see how old it is. Um, you know, we're also measuring fetuses. Um, you know, any late killed does, um, you know, you'll see me on the side of the road if a doe has been hit by a car uh, and it's close to our neck of the woods, you'll see me on the side of the road with a pocket knife. And I've got a, a fetus scale and I want to know when she was bred. Um, you know, our peak of the rut 
usually stays right there around Thanksgiving week, November 22nd through 26th. And that's pretty much held true. You know, that's the top of the bell curve. That's, that's when they're getting bred. Uh, most of them are getting bred. So, so we're trying to prevent that second rut and that third rut, and we're trying to define and streamline uh, the peak of the rut each year. And the and, uh, best way to do it is just to keep impeccable records. So that's, that's what we work on. I love it. Yep. I love it. And real quick, what, what does a four-year-old buck in your neck of the woods weigh? It varies. Ish, ish. Most of them will be 190 to 220. Yeah. Uh, that's the same as up here. That's solid. Very solid. Yep. And, you know, a buck's only going to get as big as he has to get. Um, you know, we, we try to push that with uh, native brows and, and nutrition and, uh, you know, and, and letting them reach that full potential age in, in their age structure. But, you know, we have, a for that reason, I, I think I heard 76% of all bucks alive right now in the state of Arkansas have eight points and that leaves 24% to be four pointers or six pointers or 10 pointers or whatever. Wow. So, um, 76% of them have eight points and most of them are going to peak out, you know, in that 115 to 120 mark and, you know, got to do what you can to push it a little further. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember where I was hunting in Illinois one time and the, the landowner said, uh, you know, a lot of shoot a 140 minimum, but if it's an eight point, shoot whatever eight point you want, you know, right? Right. they're that, they're that common, um, compared to the way you just said it. Um, that's right. That's right. You mentioned something back there about wanting to know if a doe is, you know, three and a half or older or not. Um, right. I think I know why my, I'm going to guess you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, an older doe than that will more often throw female doe fawns and a younger doe than that will often throw bucks is that where you were going with that or where were you going with that well i've always heard that same thing i i can't attest to that 100 percent either right. way but so so what we do we, we've got to shoot a lot of does so we're not we don't get hung up on trying to make our guest age a doe on the hoof you know some people say only shoot young does some people say only shoot old does and what we want to do is shoot the doe that's in front of you. You know, sure, the sure. one that walks out and gives you a chance, shooter, we want a doe shot. Well, what we do is at the end of the year, we, we check these jaw bones. And I sat down with, with a couple of biologist buddies of mine, and, and they are both part of the DMAP program with Game and Fish. And I sat down with them, and we age each jaw bone. And, you know, sometimes we get in arguments. This one's five and a half. No, this one's four and a half. I think she's six and a half. And well, it really doesn't matter. We want to know is it if it's older than you know, statistics show that there should be more dough on the landscape that's older than three and a half than there is that's two and a half or three and a half. So you ought to have more three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half year old does than you have two and a half and three and a half year old does. So we just shoot those, and then at the end of the year, we want to make sure that the majority of them were in that older age class. If we ever see those numbers be 50-50 or less, we need to back off on our shooting. But as long as we're shooting 70% of them that are in the older age class, you can keep doing what you're doing. So if the prescription on this club is let's shoot 20 does a year, and 
each year we're shooting 70% of them are in that older than three and a half year old age class. We keep doing what we're doing. The first time we age them and we say it's 50, 50 or less, then we'll back off to 10 does a year or five does a year on this club. But so far it's like a doe factor around here. We just, we just keep shooting. So. So Hunter transitioning to turkeys. I've noticed the population decline here in my home state of Pennsylvania and um, my neighboring state of Ohio has also cut back some of their tags. Is that what you're seeing down there? It seems to be happening across most of the turkeys range. And why do you think this is happening? Absolutely. It's, it's happening everywhere. And the only people that aren't constantly complaining about the turkey decline are the people that are, are 100% involved managing habitat for the turkeys. Um, and this is a touchy subject. I know predators is a touchy subject and I'm not gonna disagree that predators is not one of the number one cause cause it is. But the, the debate comes in in how you deal with those predators. Um, you know, we don't believe that you can trap your way to a higher turkey population. You know, does it help? Absolutely. You know, if you catch a coon, he's not eating eggs anymore. You catch a coyote or a bobcat, it's not going to eat a turkey anymore. But, you know, it's just like sending your kids out. You, you can make your Easter eggs for your kids easy to find, or you make you can make them hard to find. We choose to hide our eggs. Um, and, and we do that by um, um, moving our better turkey habitat away from the creeks and the streams and the lakes. You know, those riparian areas are usually some of the best turkey habitat on any club, um, but it's also where all the predators are. So if we can move that better habitat up to those ridge tops where those coon aren't traveling as much, um, we can clean up some brush piles, we can clean up some things, uh, but you know, we, we've got to have nest success. We've got to have brood rearing areas. Once those, those eggs are hatched, we've got to have a safe place for the hen to take those poults to. And, and that is the key, that's, that's where it's at. And while we do still see a decline, we're still enjoying success, the guys that are actively managing turkey habitat uh, against predation and in favor of, of turkey brood uh, habitat um, aren't seeing as big of a decline and are still enjoying some good turkey seasons. Hope, hope of, all of it changes in the future for the better. Sure. What kind of techniques are you seeing success with when you're moving the turkey bedding up onto the ridges? A uh, lot of timber thinning, a lot of burning, control burns. Uh, on the 1,200-acre uh, the block, that I've got up in the hills that I was talking about earlier that we, we have brought some quail back on. Uh, we have done extensive thinning. Those 30 year old pines I talked about that were just, you know, they, they had a basal area, you know, stem count of uh, uh, 140 and higher in a lot of places. It was completely blocking the sunlight out. There was no sunlight hitting the ground, nothing but clean pine needles underneath these trees. And we have cut hard, thin timber for three years and we've uh the thickest we've got any area right now is about a 70 ba and we've cut a lot of it back to a 30 and a 50 um still leaving a lot of our hardwood draws um but we're moving that turkey habitat up on top of the ridges uh we're we're 
cleaning off those south and west facing slopes that get the most sunlight. You know, we, we want to see turkeys uh, uh, having nests there. We want to see them raising poults there. Uh, number one killer of turkey poults is hypothermia. If we can put great cover on a south or west facing slope that's going to be drier, it's going to drain better, it's going to be warmer than uh, those creek bottoms, it's going to be warmer than those north facing slopes. If, if we can do that, we, we've got a foot in the door. So, so that's, that's what we're working really hard on. Okay. So you're kind of mimicking, uh, early successional growth. Is that what you're shooting for getting yes, sunlight sir. to the ground and thickening it up? Yes, sir. We're, we're taking the tall timbers, uh, uh, quail approach. You know, we want to, we want those pines thin. We want the timber thin. We want one third grass, one third forbs and one third, uh, brambles and, and woody stems. Uh, we, we want clean understory, uh, we're battling fescue nonstop. We're battling Chinese privet, Cerisa lespedeza, uh, tree of heaven. Um, the list of invasives never ends. And if we can keep these invasives at, at bay and, and keep burning and keep using herbicide and, and keep this understory where mama can stick her head up and see over in case of danger and these poults can have uh, bare ground and overhead cover to hide from these avian predators, um, you know, that's that to us, that's the ticket. That's what, okay. that's what we're striving for. So we talked a little bit about food plots for ducks and for deer. Are you doing any of that for turkeys, adding any supplemental feeding plots for them or anything? A little bit. I, I like clover. Um, I don't call them areas for feeding. I, I call them strut zones. Of course, there's always a bugging opportunity uh, in, in short clover patches. Um, I like a three-way mix of clover. Um, I mix uh, Ladino, Crimson, and Medium Red. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not like a lot of these folks. I don't use much fertilizer. Um, I don't worry a lot about soil amendments. If, if you know, we learn, um, I've got over 300 acres of food plots and trying to keep track of all that, we just, I learn what this plot will grow and what it won't. So, if it'll grow clover and we can put clover on it and have a strut zone, then we'll try to do that. Now, every one of my plots, you know, if I've got a, a four acre opening, I may have a mosaic shaped acre or acre and a half food plot in the middle, but my outside edges have a native buffer around them. And I want those quick escape routes where if, if danger is around mama and her poults can duck into that thick cover you know, feathered edges out past that and then timber past it. So, so they can have that quick escape route, but, you know, so I'm, I'm using a lot of clover because it's pretty maintenance free. I don't have to mow it. I don't have to spray it. I get it planted thick enough the first time I'm in pretty good shape, pretty fairly maintenance free. And, and if it won't grow clover, I grow, a, I, I use a lot of wheat. I can grow wheat anywhere. I can grow wheat in the back of my truck. Matter of fact, I think I got some growing there now, but, uh, <laughs> I can, I can buy wheat out of a farmer's grain bin for $7 a bushel. I'm planting two bushels per acre. So it's $14 an acre is what it's costing me. I can sling it on top of the ground and shoot doves over it in September. When it rains on it, it sprouts and I can shoot does in it throughout deer season. Then as it starts putting on a head, we, it seemed like every turkey we killed on the property last year had green wheat heads in its, in its crop. So these, these turkeys, adult turkeys are feeding in these uh, 
wheat fields once they start heading out. And then when they mature, we'll see hens and poults in there because they've got all the bugging opportunities and, and opportunities for grain. And a lot of times I can bush hog that and let it reseed itself. And I don't even have to spend $14 on it next year. So um, it's just a win, win, win for me. So, but, but, you know, I understand that I'm, I'm not a, my deer and turkey aren't making a living off of my food plots. You know, they're making a living off of our early secessional habitat that's sure. in the woods. So, so these food plots are just opportunities for us to be able to, to uh, kill deer and turkey and, and a little dab of supplemental feed and supplemental bugging opportunities. So that's, that's what we strive for. And even though I've got 300 acres of food plots, I sure don't spend much money on it compared to the next guy. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of food plots. Are you are you doing mostly? Um, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I guess in a second. I was going to ask if you're doing mostly no-till or you're not breaking up the soil on 300 acres each year. But I also want to understand maybe after you answer that, what you think your number one um, cause of of the turkey uh, decline is in your area, and then maybe on a broader scale. Well, then we'll wrap up turkey. Um, weather, um, wet, wet weather. You mentioned is, the hypothermia there. Okay. That, that, that's, I think that's our number one cause, you know, everybody's complaining, but in these areas that everybody's complaining, if we had two dry springs back to back, I think everybody'd be happy. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And I, I know we're still seeing a lot where I'm at, but the place I hunt is loaded with them. So it's kind of, you know, it's, right. it's all relative, I guess. Um, and then back to your food plots, how are you planting 300 acres? Are you, are you using any herbicide? Are you uh, drilling anything? Are you crimping anything? Are you just broadcasting? Every situation is different. If I've yeah. got, so um, when I planted my deer plots this past fall, now, now of course I'm, I'm getting a lot of volunteer crops. So I've I actually done some video and yesterday I, I planted some Stratton Legacy Blend a year ago this past August. And it came up, was beautiful, no fertilizer. Uh, soil pH is about a 5.6 in this area. Um, I slung it before rain. Vegetation was about that high. Um, I slung it before rain. I brought in a bush hog and I bush hogged it low and let that, that uh, grass clippings help cover yeah. the seed right before rain. Throwing I got that. an awesome stand. We shot deer in it. Um, we had turnips. We had radishes we had you know the grains and whatever else they've, they've gotten that mix um then i left it alone uh the field stayed too wet to get into um i went back after it dried up in the summer and was thinking do i need to disc this do i need to spray it what do i need to do but it had turnips growing in it so i just left it and there in september i came back and sprayed the whole field with clethodum because it was covered in barnyard grass sprayed it with clethodum and I've got turnips the size of basketballs out there in this and and the deer ate all the tops out of them and now they're chewing on the turnips and uh I, I've got a bean field right beside it same thing um uh and and I made a couple of videos about this last year it was uh eagle beans and I planted them I actually did fertilize them pulled soil samples and fertilized them pH is about a 5.7 or 8 on this field so it's slightly better um but I planted my soybeans planted them with a tractor and a planter, disc it up, tilled it up, uh, bedded it so I could irrigate it, uh, planted on top of the beds, laid poly pipe, run water down the middles, irrigated it, 
had waist high soybeans. Well, got a cornfield right beside it that I plant for ducks and everything had grown up and we needed to do a burn down so I could plant my corn. So it's still a little bit wet. So I called the airplane. I told the airplane, fly over the corn and don't shut it off. Go right over this bean field. Bean field is about five acres. Let's go over it too and burn it down because I need to work it up. Well, it's Roundup Ready soybeans. So when he sprayed the glyphosate across it, it killed all the vegetation except soybeans. And I had an awesome stand of soybeans there. So I just left it. And since I had signed a contract with Bayer um, saying that I wouldn't keep seed to replant the next year, I felt like it was breach of contract if I fertilized or watered or done anything. So I just done nothing. And I had waste high soybeans again. And deer fed on the soybeans all summer. They fed on the bean pods all winter. The following year, we done it again. <laughs> and all we did was spray a burn down in the spring. Three years in a row with no fertilizer input <laughs> on the same field and had beautiful waist high soybeans that put huge pods on. But I finally lost it. We got so cold last year and had so much snow and ice in February, the snow geese moved in on it and ate all my soybeans up that would have reseeded. So now I've got it planted in wheat. But um, so so this year when it was time to plant my um, uh, food plots for deer, I had plans of I was going to disc this one. I was going to no-till this one. I was just going to slang and broadcast this one and then mow the vegetation down. I had all this planned. And um, they were calling for rain and they had upped the chances. Rain wasn't supposed to be here for a couple of days and we had like a 30%. Well, they had upped it, it's coming tomorrow and we've got an 80% and they're calling for a couple of inches. So I just ran up to our local co-op where I buy all my stuff, place called Greenpoint Ag here in Desert. And um, I told them just put all, put all the bulk sacks of wheat on a fertilizer buggy and I'll come get it. And I went up there and got it, and I slung until close to midnight that night behind the tractor, just pulling a buggy full of wheat, just around and around, and just putting it on all of these little plots in the woods. And then we caught two inches of rain, and the rest is history. We we shot does over wheat, um, and I didn't do anything. I didn't spray. I didn't drill. I didn't disc. I didn't do anything on that. So, um, man, it's it's a good thing that uh, those snow geese showed up and cleaned out that bean field. Otherwise, better to be writing you a letter here pretty soon. <laughs> I know it. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I mean, three years. I've never heard anything like that. That's incredible. Good night. Three years in a row, and you know, I, I'm against the electric fence thing, but you know, it's soybeans and and rice just acre after thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. But my neighbor farms. Him and his dad farm. Um, they, they farm uh, 12,000 acres of rice and soybeans. The neighbor beside him farms 18,000 acres of rice and soybeans, all right here in this area. So, wow. you know, the deer have got plenty of food and we don't worry about anything once green up comes. You know, we just want little blocks that we can keep deer. So they, you know, during hunting season and, you know, because of that, they never wipe out um you know, four acres of soybeans, you can get three years off of it. They, you know, we, we may have a dozen deer in it every night, but they just can't keep up, you know, they just can't wipe it out. So now I plant that same thing up in the hills and it doesn't even have a chance to sprout out of the ground and they're ripping it out. So whole sure, different sure. ball game. What would your deer population density per square mile 
down on your properties, you think? What, what do you think it is down there? I used to know this. Um, we we done camera surveys. Um, we done spotlight surveys. And I used to know what it was. But, boy, I'd be scared to say right now. I do know in on this 1,000 acres that I live on, um, I believe it was probably four years ago, just off of camera surveys, we had identified 70 different bucks on this thousand acres. Now some are coming and going, but we had identified 70 different bucks and we weren't counting spikes. So anything that had enough points that we could identify and say, this buck's different than this buck. We had 70 different bucks and this was in like September, October. So Mm. pretty high. We've got a lot of deer. Yeah. It sounds like it. I think, um, yeah, one more thing I wanted to, to get into here, kind of how I started following along with you on Facebook a lot. You were offered a lot of great advice on, on sprayers. You talked about, <laughs> you know, spraying your, your beans with in the corn with the airplane there. That's not what we were talking about on, on Facebook that one time or, or not, but yep. you, you seem to be pretty good at calibrating your, your sorry, I mean, You seem to be pretty good at a lot of things, but calibrating your sprayer or helping people calibrate their sprayers. Right. Um, how the heck did you get into, into just figuring out how to do that so well and being able to communicate that to others? Because when I first started this, I was doing the same thing they're doing. And I was calling my, my uh, chemical rep and I was saying, how many ounces of this do I put in my 25 gallon sprayer? And he'd say, man, I don't know. You've got to calibrate. And I said, dude, just tell me. I don't want to calibrate. I ain't farming here. Just, just tell me how much to put in there. And he'd say something like, well, just put four ounces per gallon and you'll probably be okay. So that's what I started doing. Well, money was tight and, uh, you know, didn't have money to spend on herbicides and, and, uh, I didn't get a kill. So I called him. I said, dude, this didn't work. He said, well, it should have. I said, well, it didn't. Well, you didn't mix it stout enough. How much did, how much did you mix per acre? I don't know. You told me to dump four ounces per gallon in there. Well, it didn't kill it. So I didn't understand that. And finally he broke it down one day and he said, look, you have to know what your sprayer is putting out. You put four ounces per gallon in something, your sprayer might be putting out two gallons per acre, or it may be putting out 20 gallons per acre. So you may be way light or way heavy. Well, when he broke it down like that, then it started making sense. So with Game and Fish, we were required to go get our chemical applicators license. And the reason for that is um, they wanted to make sure that if you've done something wrong and you killed something off target, you killed the neighbor's crops that come back on you and not Game and Fish. So they made all of us load up, go sit through the all-day course and get our chemical applicators. You don't get it, you can't spray so I got my chemical applicators course uh, and they gave us a little card that that was put out by U of A extension service that had a simple little calibration deal on there. And it was like, uh, oh, gosh, I hadn't calibrated a spur since back in the summer. But um, let's see, it was uh, uh, gallons per minute times 5940 divided by um within inches times miles per hour. And I thought, man, that's pretty simple. So I started using that and started trying it and it worked. 
and all the other methods where people were, well, you get you a stopwatch and you put up cones. So you measure out this <laughs> distance, you put a cone here and you put a cone there and you, you use your stopwatch and you see how long it takes you. And then you determine how much chemical you used. And I'm like, man, that's too much and too, too, way too broad for, to be precise. And, you know, some of this chemicals we're buying, I mean, I just got a good deal on some Polaris herbicide yesterday and uh, it was $140 a gallon, um, comes in two and a half gallon jugs. So, you know, you do the math on that and, you know, I'm, it's what I'm spraying in my fire lines. I've got over 15 miles of fire lines on one property. So, you know, you, that's 50 acres. If I'm spraying, you know, 15 miles of fire lines at 15 or 20 foot wide, that's 50 acres. You make a mistake with $160 a gallon chemical across 50 acres, you made a big mistake, you know, two or $3,000 worth of herbicide. So yeah. we've got to get precise on this. Um, and so I started using this method and it was so simple. It takes literally, if you've got a tape measure handy and you've got a, a picture, you can measure your output of, of water in, you can literally know exactly what your sprayer is putting out in like five minutes and you don't ever have to do it again. I've got it rolled on the wall. I've, I've got five or six different sprayers. I've got different tips attached just to each, each sprayer. I've got weighted hoses that I can spray underwater in my fishing reservoir. I've got uh, side boom nozzles. I've got broadcast nozzles. I've got booms that fold up that go on a three, a four wheeler or go on a side by side. I've got 30 foot booms. I've got five foot booms. I've got all kinds of stuff. And my wall where my chemicals are, I have all this crap wrote down so sometimes I had to look out there and say, no, wait a minute, which sprayer do I have and which boom am I using? Okay, this one. All right, so I'm putting out 7.5 gallons per acre um, at eight miles an hour. And uh, so, you know, that's just what I mix it off of. So, you know, just pop open the label. You got to put out two pints per acre. I'm putting out uh, seven and a half gallons per acre. And you just do the math and figure out how much herbicide to put in, how many acres you can cover. And, and I never, you know, everybody's argument is, um, well, I don't know how many acres. I've just got little mosaic food plots here and there. I don't know how many acres. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, you still mix the same way if you're spraying fence rows or you're spraying ditch banks. I don't know how many acres of ditch banks I'm spraying, but you've got to know what you're putting out as you move across there so that you can get you know, and right now, what is glyphosate? Um, totally. you know, yeah. Tractor Supply had it $140 for a jug the other day, and we was paying $40 this time last year. It's it's insane. So, you know, more than ever this year, people need to be calibrating their dang sprayers. And I know that's a big word to use. So, you know, let's don't use calibrate. Find out what your sprayer is putting out so you know how much chemical <laughs> putting the dang thing. <laughs> You said you said you you'll take a, a picture or graduated uh, measuring device picture whatever and you will measure physically how much water comes out of your sprayer per what sixty seconds per yes per sir, minute? one minute one minute yep so measure the output with vehicle running sprayer turned on what it's putting out of of your boomless nozzle. Uh, for one minute. And if you've got multiple nozzles, we'll do one. We might check a couple, make sure they're all putting out the same, but we want to add all that together. We want to know total output uh, for one minute. We, we measure that in a measuring picture in ounces. 
Then we divide it by 128 so we can get gallons. And you know we want that decimal point in our gallons. We, we wanna be accurate. Um, then we take that number and we multiply it by 5940. And we use 5940 because that deal that they handed us in the, the deal several years ago, that's what it said on it, use 5940. <laughs> so somebody smarter than me come up with that. All right, then we, uh, while it was running and you were measuring, it made a wet spot on the ground. That's how wide you're spraying. So take a tape measure and measure that in inches and multiply that by how fast you think you want to go. I like to use seven or eight mile an hour if I can, if the terrain's rough and or I got thicker, taller stuff and I need more gallons per acre output on that to saturate it, get down in there better to the, to the ground. Um, then, you know, slow down a little bit. And this is where you can make your adjustment. You know, people say, well, I can't run eight mile an hour. Well, run two and just do the math different. Um, some people say, well, I've got to get across 20 acres real fast. Well, then run 12 and we'll do the math different. So, so you take the width in inches and multiply it by the miles per hour you think you want to go. Then you divide the first number by the second number. That gives you gallons per acre. Now you know how much, how many gallons per acre your sprayer is putting out. So pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the only other way to do it is to guess. You know, me and a buddy's both got the same sprayer, bought from the same company, holds the same number of gallons, has the same gallon per minute pump, has uh, the same size hoses, the same size tip, Mine puts out 7.5 per acre at eight miles an hour. His puts out 10 at eight miles oh, per hour. So huge difference in those two. Um, but, you know, he could have called me and say, hey, man, I bought a Wiley sprayer just like you got. Uh, how much herbicide should I put in there? And I could have told him what I do, but it would have been wrong for him. And while that's not, hasn't been a big deal in the past, most people are just spraying glyphosate. But, you know, if you're uh, if you're spraying some some pre-merge herbicide you know where you have to get 12 gallons per acre or more of product into the soil um because that's what the label says we want to make sure we get it right or we're wasting money now with glyphosate at 50 dollars a gallon um and it's coming in two and a half gallon jugs 150 dollars a jug you've got two options you you guess you either put out more than you know you're supposed to and you're wasting money or you put out not enough and it doesn't work now you got to do it again and you've wasted money so i don't understand people's mentality take five minutes and get it right so after i started this campaign last year on facebook and i was pretty adamant about it i made a lot of enemies but <laughs> hey if, if you ain't got haters you're not making progress so I like that. I so, like it. so anyway um but the people i literally through pm messages on facebook messenger help people calibrate over 100 sprayers wow. last year. And uh, a, lot, a lot of people thank me. And some of them even called back for other advice. And I've got them uh, uh, managing early successional habitat now instead of planting food plots and slinging stuff out of a bag. So win-win, almost like leading somebody to the Lord. Yeah, so, exactly. Great right. stuff. Great stuff. Exactly. <laughs> right. and, and you started, we started this whole conversation with, you go, I don't know why y'all want to interview me. I don't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here taking notes like a, you know, just got my full paper over here. This is awesome. I was sitting here thinking I was glad you were persistent and got him on. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. First of all, he turned me down, guys. So I'll, I'll tell the listeners, Hunter turned me down. He goes, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get on there. And and uh, we've persisted. We got him. But this has been phenomenal. This is awesome. Um, well, I figured there was a whole lot of people out there that had a lot more stuff to say and was a lot sure. smarter about this stuff than I am. But those people don't like to communicate, I guess. I just, yeah. you know, you, you, there's a lot of crap on Facebook that people talk about. And, you know, you want to get on there and correct them because you know it would help them, but all you're going to do is start a fight. And, uh, right. you know, I, I would love, I, I've got a, I've got a page on Facebook called Habitat How To. And it started out kind of like um, um, Habitat for Dummies, you know, cause uh, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind on this deal. But, <laughs> but as I learned things, I was just trying to help other Others realize what, what I had learned. And, um, you know, I would love to have some people come on there and help me put content on it, but man, you'd be surprised. I've asked a lot of people and you just people, no, man, I don't want to argue with those idiots on there. So, um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's great stuff, man. This stuff is fascinating. It's what, what keeps me smiling. It's what I get up for every morning. Um, I've got a, I've got a, thing up here on my wall uh a sign my wife gave me that said i didn't wake up this morning to be mediocre and uh man it just that's philosophy i live by I just if you're going to do it man learn all you can and let's do this thing right let's let's make a let's make an impact that's perfect that's very perfect and we'll we'll be sure to share your your facebook page too if you'd like and uh maybe we can swap some content back and forth we run we run in the same thing we got guys who produce some content for us um and when you, when you get 10, 12, 15 guys, you know, and then when the content starts coming in, that slowly, you know, narrows down to a few, you know, it's just people are busy and, and, you know, but once you start getting into it and start sharing and, and realize uh, you're helping people, it makes it all worth doing. Man, it uh, does. And you should have, you should have, I mean, I was that guy six years ago. I would have argued till I was blue in the face about anything you wanted to argue about. Um, I just, you're not right. Um, so, so when, when I started having to, you know, I, I took over this, this property up in the Hills and I had to learn about upland management. I knew a little bit about ducks and, uh, all I've ever known my whole life was, was, uh, ducks, dirt and dogs. I mean, I didn't know anything else. And, you know, I, I could turkey hunt and be successful occasionally, but now I've got to manage for them and we've got to put more on the landscape and quail, man, I ain't shot a quail since I was nine years old. Um, I don't know anything about quail. I don't know anything about pine trees. And for me to learn what I learned and, and realize that, you know, grandpa wasn't right when he told me some of this stuff and, and all this stuff that, that I read in outdoor life in the eighties and nineties, it wasn't right. Um, that was a hard lesson learned for me. So, so I can relate to these people that are, that are, hard-headed and and what took it for me was you know i argued with you till i finally decided i'm gonna get on uh the internet and i'm gonna prove you wrong i'm gonna prove to you that i'm right but then the research showed that hey i ain't right this guy is so you know i just i hope every morning that somebody can prove me wrong with something that i'm adamantly think i know about because i mean that's how we learn so Teaching me something, man. That's what I, every day I just thirsty for knowledge. 
why do you think we started this whole thing? You know, it's just, it's the same right. exact thing, and um, it's it's been a an awesome conversation. We always wrap up with a couple questions here. One of them, I got I got to know your favorite tree, first of all. So could be for habitat, could be for hunting, could be for on your properties out there. What is your favorite tree? Man, I like a swamp chestnut, um, also called a cow oak. Um, I've got one spot on this thousand acre block I live on where I can find them. Um, you know, even though it's got swamp in the name, they still like to be on a little higher ground. Um, <laughs> and, and we're pretty low right here. So I've got one corner, the very southeast corner of this farm, um, I've got several swamp chestnuts on and the deer just hammer them, uh, early season. And that's, uh, I'd have to say that that's, uh, I'm fascinated by it. I, th I think that's probably, uh, one of my favorite trees, swamp chestnut. I don't think we've had that one, Brian. No, I think that's the first. Yeah. I don't know how many swamp, more episodes. Swamp white oak, I think is the closest one we've had. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then I've been adding this question in lately. Um, get some interesting responses on this one too. I want to understand what your best habitat implement is. The one that you use the most out of everything you got. You know, what are you, what are you going to for your number one tool? What's got the most wear and tear on it? Man. I bought a tree saw to go on the front of my skid steer uh, a few years ago. And it doesn't set idle very often. Um, I use it over my mulcher. Um, I use it over a, hacking, a, a hatchet and a squirt bottle. Um, I can lay a great big old tree on the ground in just a few seconds. And um, the sweet gums and the cedars have been in trouble these last couple of years. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's my favorite tool. It's got a 40-inch saw blade on the end of it and a big guard uh that protects the cab and and i'm i'm cut three quarters of the way through trees and push them over um i i've i've got to experiment with a lot of hinge cutting because i can hinge cut i can hinge cut a 24 inch diameter oak tree uh i can hinge cut any tree with this thing now i'm not a fan of hinge cutting but i have done i have experimented you know i've been intrigued by hinge cutting stump sprouts timber thinning and and i have used this tool um and experimented with every bit of it uh over the last couple of years and so that's uh that's my favorite habitat tool um cut them trees and put sunlight on the ground yes sir i'm into that well hunter it's it's been awesome man great conversation really glad you came on and just want to thank you for your time uh like to hear more from you in the future maybe we'll maybe we'll get that that sprayer formula from you or something where the listeners might want to hear sure. more so just really appreciate it man thank you absolutely so much. sure it's been a lot of fun thank y'all yeah we'll have to get down your neck of the woods someday and see those precision fields and maybe take care of some of those pesky eight points for you come on <laughs> let's do it all right gotta shoot does first though absolutely <laughs> we're, we're good at that all right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Hunter. Y'all take care. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't 
been to our website, habitatpodcast.com. We have our habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras. The Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations. Packer Max Cultipackers. Afflictor Broadheads. Killer Food Plots. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. And Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Mm-hmm.